0: Hi, I'm Howard Tierski. Welcome to the Winning Digital Customers Podcast, where we focus on the stories of large scale digital transformations told by the people who lead them. All right, everybody, welcome to the Winning Digital Customers Podcast. I have got an awesome, awesome guest with us today, Joseph Michelli, I should say, Dr. Joseph Michelli a number one New York Times bestselling author, I'm jealous, also a Wall Street Journal number one best-selling author, an expert in customer experience, and he has written numerous books analyzing different leaders in customer experience, including Ritz-Carlton, Starbucks, Airbnb, Zappos, Mercedes-Benz, and UCLA, and synthesized insights from looking at all those companies and he's going to share that with us today, as well as he is going to give us a little sneak preview at his new book coming out next month, all about leading in the coronavirus crisis. So tons of great stuff we're going to cover in the next half hour. I want to welcome my guest, Dr. Michele, and uh, would love for you to tell the listeners a little bit more about yourself than I might have done.
1: Well, Howard, if you're going to keep calling me Joseph, I'm going to end up having to charge you double. So double zero is what we're going to cost you for this thing. You know, I am so, I'm one of those lucky guys. I think both you and I would say the opportunity to help businesses connect with their customers is really a gift. And I've been doing this now since a piker. I did get my PhD from the University of Southern California. We share that in our background. Uh, And from there, I, I went on and used that organizational psychology work to engage the Pike Place Fish Market in Seattle, Washington where they throw fish and ended up writing a book about them. And before you know it, Howard Schultz and his team was interested and we ended up working there and writing a book about them. Did another book by the time Howard had turned the company around. And then on to Ritz Carlton and a variety of other clients that I've had the good fortune of writing about, like Mercedes-Benz. So it's been an amazing journey of consulting and then being able to share those stories with readers, thanks to uh, McGraw-Hill. Well, that's awesome. Well, I know I've I've looked at a number of your
0: books over the years. I would love to ask you, having looked at so many companies, are there themes that you see that cut across all of these successful companies that you'd kind of say any successful company should be looking at?
1: Yeah, there's no doubt there's themes. And then every one of them has a variation on the theme. The theme for me, for most all of them, is that they are technology-aided, human-powered. That's the theme. Now, that's pretty broad, but at its core, people understand that if you don't make it convenient for folks, there is no hope that people are going to exert the energy to do business with you. That was so 1960s. So nowadays, these brands are all around what is going to make it maximally convenient, reduce the amount of effort for our consumers. How do we listen exceedingly well at scale so that we can meet and anticipate their needs? And then how do we make sure we have people around who are passionately interested in connecting with other human beings and serving them. And service professionalism is is at the core of most all the brands that I work with.
0: Interesting. I know there's some people who might speculate that as technology becomes much more of an interface to provide different types of customer experiences that the human component, while still important, might seemingly be getting less and less important. But I know that some of your research suggests the opposite of that. Can you talk a little bit about that to what some people might be a counterintuitive idea that as technology becomes more sophisticated, and correct me if I misstate your position here, that the human component becomes even more important?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And going into the coronavirus pandemic, um, Starbucks, for example, was testing in the New York market stores where you would do everything mobily in terms of your journey, your mobile ordering, your mobile pay. You would show up and you would have no place to sit. The stores were designed not to have any kind of seating space because they felt you would be mobile with your coffee. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, they had a human do the handoff. There was this notion that if we're going to make a connection with a human being, the technology is going to aid and facilitate the transaction, but it's not going to give us a moment of uplifting spirit that could happen between a barista and a Starbucks customer. Now, granted, you see other brands right now moving even farther down that spectrum with Chipotle doing everything completely digitally. The handoff is digital. I think that will be around for as long as safety requires no human interaction or minimal human interaction or distant human interaction. But at some point when that starts to move back, I think we're going to want all of the benefits of the technology that we had. We'd still like to have a smiling person who said, welcome to Chipotle or welcome to Starbucks. And thank you for having invested in us today instead of the other brand across the street. And if that person supports the greatness of the technology. You're a differentiator versus all the people who just mimic the technology.
0: Yeah, I see that. And I wonder if you have any advice for companies that are trying to figure out when is the right time to inject that human component? Like I would imagine and correct me if you see it differently, but there are times when I just want my thing, you know, like, I don't really want, as a consumer, I don't want to deal with a human being, frankly. I want the driver for my printer. A, it needs to be upgraded. And I just, as fast as I can just get that done. And I don't think, and maybe I... Maybe I'd be wrong if I had it and I would realize I did want it. I'm not sure, but I don't think I'm looking for the more human involvement that's necessary, the more annoyed I am. And then maybe there are other times when if you took the human component away, my experience, as you just described, would somehow feel incomplete. I don't know if you agree with that hypothesis or oh, not. Oh,
1: absolutely. And and it's even, you know, in, in the old days, we might talk about digital natives having no tolerance for people under any circumstance. And then, you know, digital aliens like myself, you know, kind of picking and choosing those rare moments where I might opt for technology over here. But I think what we've seen in the pandemic is that pretty much all of us have been digesting a highly digitized experience. And so I don't think we're going to reset our taste buds now to something that lacks those elements. But what I would say, and I know both you and I do this, like we do the visioning sessions of the customer experience of the future. And when I do it, most of the time what comes out of it is that we've got a full digital pathway to everything in the business to the maximum degree possible. We should be designing it because there are customers who just want that. We've got a high touch pathway for people who really haven't acclimated to the technologies or maybe they just enjoy being interactive with people over technology. And then the reality is it's a hybrid journey up and down, in and out of technology. Sometimes I'm in the mood for it. Sometimes don't bother me with a person. Uh, Certainly, if the technology goes wrong, I better have a person available to fix it because I certainly don't want another technology fixed when a technology is broken. There's some understandable moments, but what, what I would say fundamentally is you need to know who your core customers are, what their basic appetites for journeys are, and where is it that they're most likely to want a choice point with both human and or technology available. And if you don't understand that, you can't design the experience that's going to meet the bulk of your consumer uh, segments.
0: Yeah. And who do you think doing it the best in terms of giving that choice point?
1: You know, I think there are so many great brands. I hate choosing because I end up always picking these bad examples. I used to to say something like Airbnb when I was writing the Airbnb Way book because I thought that they had done a really good job using people like Chip Conley to help drive hospitality within the community, while the platform itself used the technology. Certainly, they are beleaguered and battered from the pandemic like many in the hospitality sector. So I'm probably not quite there. I am a huge fan of Starbucks. We'll continually believe that they're doing a very good job of integrating technologies. I think they were a a leader in using mobile pay in this country when it was still not fashionable to pull your phone out to pay for something.
0: Yeah, I actually think Airbnb is a fascinating example there because it is true that the personality of the person that you're renting from or whatever the term there is, you know, the host does become part of your experience. And you really feel like this is somebody's, even though, frankly, most of the Airbnbs that I wind up in, that person's not really their home, right? It's a business, right? They've got five of these units or whatever else, but still, there's that sense of personal touch. And that's kind of part of the charm. And yet, if I go to Marriott and check in... And the person behind the counter wants to start having a whole conversation with me about like, how was my flight? You know, I'm like, how do I extract myself from this? You know,
1: i has <laughs> been trained to ask Can me get my, my key. Please yeah. just like, give me well, my key. Yeah.
0: You know, it's like, I know you don't really care. I don't really want to tell you. So, oh, my flight was fine. Whatever. Give me my key. I'm out of here. You know, but it's a little different. So I, I don't, I'm not sure there's a recipe there, but it, it just does illustrate the point you're making, which is it's tough to know when the person is going to want it or not, or under what circumstances.
1: Yeah, and I think that's enlightened hospitality. It's that ability to read the, you know, the sign, the invisible sign. Danny Meyer talks about it. all of us when we walk into a setting have an invisible sign, make me feel important, mm. you know, leave me alone. <laughs> and the right customer experience is the ability to read that invisible sign. Yeah. there's a lot of nonverbal cues that that Marriott clerk should have been reading that said this is not the time to become my friend. Right, right. Well,
0: and I now, as we look at this hybrid digital personal world that we're in now. I wonder if tools like sentiment analysis will help to determine when is the right time. One of the optimal things always seems if you can figure out when someone's on a self-service type experience, like in an an e-commerce store, when's the right time to offer help. And I see that done wrong all the time. Like in my own experience, you know, it's like the old Clippy thing, right? You know, from Microsoft, you know, you're trying to do something and all of a sudden this giant paperclip pops up to help you. And it was almost always the wrong time. And you're like, leave me alone. And yet there are times when you're walking around a store and you're like, wait, I need help. Where is there somebody? Sometimes in customer experience, it seems like people always want to follow you around a furniture store when you don't want any help. And then when you need somebody at Walmart, you can't find anybody. So I don't know. And, and maybe that's like a cold fusion or something, but any tips for
1: businesses to figure out how to know when to be there and when to back off? Well, I'm a big fan of AI. I think it's, it's going to make that certainly more functional in terms of insertion of suggestions. I think it's also helping contact center representatives kind of know where to go and where to kind of probe or when to probe. Those are really super helpful. I think it, it is built into the intuition of a great salesperson to use your example of the store. You know, Great salespeople re-engage with purpose. They give you that overview of your store journey. They assess whether or not you're already a customer or not. They temper what they're going to offer you upon arrival based on Are you a veteran with the brand? You don't need an orientation to the store layout, but you might need some kind of a preview of some of the fall line And then when you say, I'm just browsing, right, which is often what's happening on these websites, they know when to re-engage with purpose. So when you browse on something for long enough, uh, then it's kind of showing some intent. And then they might bring in something that's comparable. They might share some additional information about that very product that you might not be exposed to. They don't bombard you with that level of information at every product that you just quickly throw your eyes across. I I think it is a combination of these AIs and these technologies that enable us to understand some areas of energy that we can then add value to. And the same has always been going on in retail yeah, and the brick yeah. and mortar.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, one last question about the breadth of things you've studied, and then I definitely want to dive in on coronavirus, is uh, I'm wondering as you've looked at what's worked across different industries like automotive, restaurant, you know, retail, et cetera, even healthcare. Are there some things that are unique to each of those areas? Are there some things where you'd say, well, yeah, you know, you can't follow the same recipe to run great customer experience at a hospital versus some of these other areas? Are there any things that you found are are sort of industry specific versus those things that cut across?
1: Yeah, I think the, the degree to which people opt in are different in different settings. You know, Mercedes-Benz, I, I had just come from doing some work with a food service retail brand, and we are super sensitive about honoring opt-in preferences. And I was at Mercedes-Benz, and they have one owned and operated dealership in Manhattan. And we're discussing RFID chipping cars, you know, it's putting these RFID chips into everybody's car, no asking for permission. And I was horrified, like, this is going to not go well. Next thing I know, they're in the cars. As soon as you drive up you know, near field beacons, identify your cars in the area and there's your name in lights as you're pulling in. It's now signaled a trigger to your concierge who meets you curbside, greets you by name on arrival and customers loved it, right? We had all of our narrative talking points about what we would say if people were concerned about being tracked with their mistress in another side of town. I mean, we had it all under control, But just the appetite for being able to explore that was different in that sector. I could have never gotten away with that at at a hotel brand that I worked with. So I think you see some variations on tolerances for different technology intrusions, if you will, because of perception of value that you get from those.
0: I imagine healthcare, there's a whole other angle on that sort of thing. (laughs) Healthcare,
1: there's nothing that you could do as it respects to privacy is so huge there. It's very different. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the book that you have coming out. So can you give everyone a little bit of an overview of what the book is? I was consulting for Godiva Chocolate. Uh, I've been working with them for years. The CEO at the time had just come over from Starbucks, Annie Young Scrivener. And so I'd worked with her back at Starbucks and she was opening up retail cafes. So, you know, you think of them in a different sector, more like boutiques, but she was opening up cafes to go head to head against Starbucks. And uh, I was going to do a book about them in 2020. By February, I wasn't touring the plant like I had envisioned out of an abundance of caution. So I had to pivot quickly. And fortunately I was already on a bunch of task forces for my clients and I was getting a front row seat on leadership and the degree to which they were listening to customers and listening to their team and different things they were doing from a tech perspective. And I said, Oh my gosh, I need, to kind of get my arms around the diversity of strategies being used in the midst of this crisis because some seem to be working and some to me just seem to be like throwbacks to the 1960s or highly hyper-reactive. So anyway, I met with uh, my my leaders at the companies that I worked with, the CEOs there, and they introduced me to other CEOs and clients in my network. And before you know it, we had 140 global leaders, the likes of Brian Cornell, the CEO of Target, Michelle Gass, the CEO of Kohl's, Hans Vestberg, CEO of Verizon, all those kind of folks were uh, taking time with me and they were very kind to do that. And, and we share their insights in uh, this new book called Stronger Through Adversity.
0: That's fantastic, yeah.
1: So, so you get the combined
0: wisdom of like 140 different CEOs and how they've been dealing with this.
1: Absolutely. And presidents and, you know, board members, you know, you mentioned uh, Marriott, you know, I was talking with Stephanie Leinertz, who's a president at Marriott, and, you know, they're worried about furloughs, right? And then I'm talking to to someone at Microsoft, and Matt Renner is telling me about worrying about being able to scale the Teams platform. It was completely opposite. One was racing like no tomorrow to keep the infrastructure technology working for collaboration, and the other was trying to figure out how do we maintain the best talent without losing them when we're obviously going to have to furlough them yeah and what were some of the big ahas you had
0: hearing from all these folks
1: well I think one of the, the key ahas is that people have used your technologies that you have been tra- encouraging them to use for so long at speeds they never thought they could deploy mm. right there were these people who had many nice to haves on a long-term technology roadmap that suddenly had them in full deployment in weeks They were mystified by why it was so easy to get them off the ground when they had such a long run ramp on them before. So I think that was part of it, that just seeing the speed of adaptation to technology was remarkable. There were many, many insights about how they use these technologies to create human connections. The CEO of uh, what was, he used to be the CEO of Mercedes when I worked there, and now he's the CEO of the uh, organization that oversees Mercedes-Benz Stadium and the Atlanta Falcons and PGA Superstores. But Steve Cannon basically was using this technology to introduce people from his team that he had never normally interact with to luncheons with the CEO. He was asking them to go grab something from their home as a show-and-tell item and bring it forward and start that meeting with the CEO talking about the picture on the wall or the pet they had in their lap. It was really a remarkable time for leaders to leverage technology platforms to create greater human connection.
0: Yeah, that's very powerful. And I've heard that too, that the opportunity to see into people's homes, while obviously there's a certain distance created by the video technology, also has a certain intimacy that you don't get in the workplace.
1: Yeah, you know, too bad people couldn't have seen earlier on. They, they would have known that you were trying to fight a stream of light in your home, <laughs> crossing Sorry. over the entire oh, yeah. screen. So, there's, yeah. there's my there's uh, There my is, it is. Thank you for sharing it. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I mean, we get to see into people's bedrooms instead of the boardroom. And right. people, I think by nature of their kids running in with an adolescent angst uh, in the middle of a Zoom call, it changes the dynamic. And I think we realized when so much virtual work was getting done that people's lives were getting very complicated. Complicated. And you saw leaders, I think, demonstrating greater empathy for that, greater compassionate acts in accord with that. I think they understood that fear was a driver of every decision for an employee and for a consumer. And we needed to not just listen to the words they were saying, we needed to listen beyond the words to the emotional factors that were contributing to their well-being. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I want to go back to the point you made earlier about you heard that people were
0: amazed at how quickly they were able to deploy new features and those types of things. I know, for example, the percentage of stores that offer buy online, pick up in the store slash curbside, of course, has exploded. And that's the kind of thing that many retail chains had on their wish lists, on their intended roadmaps. But all of a sudden, of course, it went to the front. What do you think is a lesson learned, though, from when you had something that you thought was going to take a year, and then when you had to do it, you know, you got it done in six weeks? Does that say that the way that we were operating before was unnecessarily cumbersome, or did things just get done in a kind of a spit and bailing wire kind of way, and now they're going to have to be redone the right way anyway?
1: Well, I think it's both. I mean, it's it's a yes <laughs> because mm-hmm. I think part of it is that people are way too slow to move toward innovation because they do love the way things have always been, and it took not being able to do things the way they've always done them to cause them to move forward into the slipstream of innovation. Uh, Lots of brands that I work with are high equity brands. You know, to try to get the Ritz-Carlton Hotel Company to move is to say, let's take all of that equity and all that gravitas that we built and take a flyer on something wildly different. So you you understand it, you respect it. And yes, I I know there's going to be another level of meetings there, filtering these decisions out in ways that a startup won't have to deal with they've earned that brand equity. They certainly don't want to lose it. On the flip side, though, I, I think you did see people saying, this is life or death. This is survival. We are. We, if we don't get this done, we will not be relevant in the marketplace today. And so the urgency of the moment forced them to cut through all of that and just forget about their legacy and their gravitas and focus on tomorrow's lunch. And so when they got that, that's great. And now you're right. There's a lot of I wouldn't want to see the inner workings of how some of these things got pulled off. And can they scale? Can they sustain? You know, I've worked with brands where they're just on the breaking point of taking mobile orders. You know, they shut down because they just don't have a big enough spigot to get all that stuff through for long periods of time. And they're throttling orders. And you know the world much better than I do. But but suffice it to say, they got out there in front. Now they have to optimize. And so
0: now that we have this very new news of the vaccine. For those listening, I'm always mindful that someone could be listening to this two years from now, you know, but uh, we've just learned uh, that the vaccine is likely to come out in the next few months. And so we may be going back to a more normal life within the next six months or so. How much of the changes that have occurred in these companies, did you get a sense from the interviews you've done, are likely to be glad that's over, put everything back exactly the way it was in in January of 2020, or how much of this is going to stick?
1: Yeah, I I worry when I talk to a leader who really wants new, normal, or any of those phrases. I mean, you got to be better than normal coming out of this thing. It's not like pining for a prior state of being and being ready to jump back. There is a neuropsychological research concept of an optimism bias that exists for all of us. We tend to believe that things are going to get back to a greater degree of normalcy faster than they usually do. So leaders who resist that uh, really appreciate that we're going to do this and that as opposed to one or the other. I think we definitely are going to lose the touchless ease sorts of tools that we've developed in this time or the interconnectivity that we've become dependent upon. We will supplement it with some of the elements that we long for so much. And I I think that's what you should be thinking about as a leader, right? I mean, let's make this as amazing as possible with the technologies we have, but let's also be aware of what people are craving and they're craving the ability to have that human contact. So I can't wait for us to build more of that in, but in the meantime, I'm pretty pretty excited about what we can do on these types of platforms.
0: Yeah, yeah, I absolutely agree. And I think as people have gotten better with these platforms, it's just become a more, even a richer experience. You know, it's funny, I, I work with Tony Robbins, and we do we've been doing some events that are 15, 20, 30,000 people over zoom. And uh, on the one hand, of course, you don't have quite the same feeling of being in the room with people on the other hand, you can see people's faces so much better, you know, you can, in a sense, get again, it's 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 not a straightforward, oh, it's definitely less intimate and connected to people. It's different. And it's, it's just an interesting shift.
1: Well, Howard, I actually I had interviewed Tony Robbins, a young Tony Robbins, when I was doing talk radio on the Business Radio Network. Really? And uh, I thought he was just mesmerizingly, just overwhelming. And I thought this guy's probably going to be successful someday. Nice. Oh. Nice. Well, you got yeah, that. So I think I, I think I'm the one who predicted this. He seems to have done him. I made him all he is today. Really. <laughs> it was all that was. If he looks back, that radio, the- that interview, that was the that got to Seven point. people. Boom. <laughs> It was the right seven people in my audience. huh.
0: No doubt. No doubt. Well, you know, I, I want to also ask about all these folks that you've interviewed. Did you hear stories of what folks did wrong? Things, obviously, there's a lot of uh, sympathy I would have for anyone who made mistakes during coronavirus because, man, it came so fast and it was so novel, no pun intended, that of course you're not going to do everything right. But did you hear any lessons learned where people said, you know, we did this and we know better now in the same situation again, we would do it differently?
1: Oh, so many. My my favorite one is Jeff Daly. He's the CEO of Farmers Insurance. Uh, the bump, 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 bump people. Um, and Jeff. You know, he basically said uh, he got data from his senior leadership team that automobile driving was going down. They were going to have to pay less claims. They could forecast that really easily. And uh, they came to him and said, I think we could give a give back on some of those premiums right now. And uh, he considered it, you know, th- this was times of high moral decision making. Do we bank some of that because we don't know how long this is going to go? And and he decided to bank some of that. And the next week, USAA came out with a give back. And then Farmers was a fast follower. I mean, they didn't miss a beat then. But he went out to his people and he said, I didn't listen to my team and I should have. I should have trusted my team and their instincts on this. And I'm sorry. And he said that to his entire organization. Well, you know, they do a lot of pulse surveys, another really important technology to have available to get the voice of the customer in. And his internal surveys shot through the roof in terms of employee engagement. And it was matched by productivity. Uh, And I think, you know, these are the lessons of Let's not only make mistakes, let's acknowledge our mistakes in full light of day. Let's use that to show that we're not perfect people, but neither are our teams. And they want to be led by somebody who's imperfect, but all of us collectively aligned to try to make a more perfect world at the end of the day. And I I just saw lots of willingness to admit those kinds of errors among the people that I spoke with uh, for the purposes of Stronger Through Adversity.
0: Fantastic. Well, we have time for maybe one more. Is there any other final story from the book or an insight or an example that you think is really illustrative for people that are listening?
1: I think if you're a leader, you have to realize that you're almost like a wild horse herd leader. Uh, in a wild horse herd, you have an alpha mare at the front, you have an alpha sire at the back, and there are horses inside of the herd that are shaping herd behavior. And when that happens, uh, they're all doing different roles. The mayor is guiding them to the vision and coming up with the best strategy. The people in the herd are very critical to making sure there's not division, that people are working together effectively. And then the leader at the back is one who's clearing the way, keeping the pace and saying, I'm not gonna talk first. You guys gotta solve this. I'm here to help, but I'm not gonna shortcut your ideation or innovation. And I think during this, I saw leaders really moving from the front to the middle, to the back, to the middle, to the front, to the back, depending upon what circumstances were. And I just encourage leaders to think about what is their predominant style? When is it situationally appropriate to get out of the way so others can ideate and innovate? And when is it that you have to show the way to make it possible for your teams to get to safety?
0: Yeah. Amazing. Great insights. What a great opportunity you had. And so glad you did it to gather all that insight, because I bet you if you'd have waited a year, you wouldn't have gotten nearly as good stuff, you know, to be actually talking to all these leaders right when they were in the thick of it. I mean, that's the ultimate time to really gain insights. That's amazing. That's. I think
1: that's the key to all of us, right, is when the opportunity arises, we need to be ready to step in. And I got kind of lucky with the opportunity to step in.
0: Yeah, awesome. Well, so the book is Stronger Through Adversity, World-Class Leaders Share
1: Pandemic-Tested
0: Lessons on Thriving During the Toughest Challenges by uh, New York Times number one bestselling author, uh, Dr. Joseph Michelli. And Joseph can you just tell everyone I know the book is coming out next month can you, you just- can
1: yeah, you know you can you can purchase it from the time of this to whenever they listen strongerthroughadversity.com if it's before the release in mid December they'll get 40% off it's 15 bucks plus shipping in the US so it's a uh, it's within most people's budget this time of year uh, in any regard it's strongerthroughadversity.com
0: Awesome. Well, definitely encourage everyone. I know I will be getting it. It sounds like an awesome read. I'm looking forward to it. A little holiday reading coming just in time for your New Year's staycation, whatever that may be. So uh, yeah, definitely encourage everyone to get it. And uh, Joseph, thanks so much for joining us. This has been a fantastic discussion.
1: Howard, I am a fan. Thanks for transforming human experiences digitally.
0: Well, thanks so much.
1: All right. And thank you all for listening. Bye, everybody.